Hello and welcome to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashran Johan. Joining me on the show today is Suri Kemper, an activist who has been fighting for gender equality and equal citizenship rights for more than a decade. She's been attached to various non-profits over the years, including Sisters in Islam and Arrow. She's now the president of Family Frontiers. Welcome to the show, Suri. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about your journey. Let's start from the very beginning, right? Um, you've been an independent activist for more than a decade, um, advocating for gender equality, equal citizenship rights. Like I mentioned in the introduction, um, you've even worked with the previous Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development. Um, you've even uh, worked with the UN. But when exactly did your journey and activism start? That's quite a throwback. <laughs> so um, I guess I would say in college, probably. I mean, that I mean, I thought it was always really important for young people and for students to have a voice. And so when I studied in the American degree program at Taylor's, I ran for student council president and a very dear friend of mine was vice president. And, you know, that was just like the first inkling of it. And, you know, we really wanted to raise these issues. But I guess proper like advocacy um, was something I picked up in the United States when I went there after Taylor's, right? Uh, so I was at the University of Wisconsin. And when I first went, I, my my real thought was, you know, okay, I'm just going to focus. I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to focus on graduating quickly. I'm not going to get involved, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what were you studying back then? I was studying international relations um, and, and global cultures, right? But but I also was like, yeah, I'm just, you know, going to go, going to do this quickly and then go home because, like, I loved home. Um, and with that, like, I, at home, I was in my element, right? And, like, here, I was, it was just a little bit weird to be all alone. But at the same time, I was on campus and I, I thought it was amazing how all these students were so active and, and like, they were had issues. There were a whole bunch of issues and people were always out on the courtyard, outside, you know, just trying to get signatures before petitions, lobbying to get free tuition. But it always seemed like, and those issues I could still ignore because even though the temptation is great to like, say what, say what, it still seemed like, okay, well, those are American things. Like even if I work on them, they won't probably affect me, you know? Uh, and so that, so that, that I still had a reason or like a justification to myself, at least not to get involved. But then 9-11 happened. And suddenly, as a foreign student, as you know, on on campus, um, things started to change, right? Um, so the government, the U.S. government, at that point passed the Patriot Act, and part of that act involved um, this order for universities that have foreign students to monitor their and surveil their students, their foreign students, right? Because because you know that the night. Um, the 9-11 uh, like incident, like two of the guys who flew into the towers um, were, were there on student visas. So, you know, there was this um, big conversation around surveillance. And of course, the universities then said, well, we don't have the money to launch a massive surveillance program. Um, and part of that surveillance included like, you know, um, keeping an eye on what foreign students checked out from the library what kind of books they read i mean it was pretty intense and so and so then the university my university at least at that point said 
well, we don't have the budget for it to, you know, launch such an extensive uh, surveillance program. Um, but, you know, I guess if international students want to come here, then they can they can pay for it themselves. And right. of course, at this point, we were like outraged, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it was such an outrageous proposition to us because as international students, we already pay higher fees than local students, right? Yep. Um, and then to then say, hey, we have to surveil you and you have to, by the way, you have to pay for your own surveillance was just so... Yeah, just crazy. So, yeah, so crazy. And so like an infringement of our rights. You know, I just felt like so terrible. Like this is no. So at that point, I was just like, well, I can no longer ignore this. This We have to do something. So, I mean, I had been volunteering with like um, the student council on campus, but, you know, just doing... Uh, like just random stuff to keep my finger on the pulse. But at this point, we launched like an international student campaign. It was a a mix of graduate and undergraduate students. And at that point, because I was an undergraduate student, I um, co-led the undergraduate student representation. But I think what really came from that, and so of course, you know, we did things like we organized a walkout. And so, okay, the university I was at had a pretty big student, international student uh, population, like about 10%. Of also, right. a lot of them were at the graduate level, so they were teaching. They were grad assistants. They helped uh, professors run those classes, right? And so, of course, the way to get the attention of of the university administration at this point was to say, how do we disrupt, you know, see, daily life? Right. How do we disrupt things and and force them to pay attention to us? So we organized a walkout, right? So all international students and those who supported us on this particular day would walk out of classes and just left things and see, okay, and then we would like see how things run now without us. Right? <laughs> it was essentially the message. And so that caused such a big disruption that uh, the school administration called us in, you know, engaged us in conversation and dialogue. And then, you know, after several rounds, we eventually found the money to like set this up because I mean, the universities were in a bind because they had to implement it or or not or risk not being able to admit any more international students. And so we said we understand that, um, but we will not be paying for it out of our own pockets. So then they found the money and then they implemented it, right? So um, and so while there were other existing issues, I mean, you know, it was for me at least a defining moment, right? Like this was like when I like for me it was so empowering to to experience that student organizing, that young people organizing could change things. It could shift position, the positions of those in power to take different, to un, like look at different alternatives, to do things differently, that we could make a difference. And that was just so, I think, electrifying for me that, that I knew like this is something that I wanted to do, like to, you know, like people power. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that was a huge thing for me, yeah. <laughs> Now, it's it's interesting because it seems like, you know, 9-11 and, and the subsequent um, impact that had on students and, and, you know, you being part of the student movement in the US um, really was a pivotal moment, a turning point in your life. But following that, you've been um, very heavily involved in a lot of um, gender equality, um, activism and advocacy, um, equal citizenship rights. Why are these causes um, in particular important to you? I think that's a good question. I mean, I started off just looking at like issues of equality, right? Like in the States, it was being a person of color. um, And then, um, but there were also like, it was the first time I 
was able to apply a critical lens towards like like you know issues of race and class and inequality really and 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 for me at least like just to fast forward that to respond to your question i think at the end of the day underlying all of these things is exclusion right exclusion right. and discrimination because of an identity a construct that someone else determined put you in a position where you were less than you were somebody who was not enough right and that as a result of that particular identity whether it was race or whether it was um gender or whether it was religious status or whether it was your sexuality you then became less than and that you had to bear the brunt of not being of being denied certain rights and access to certain rights right and and i found that incredibly difficult to stomach right to tell someone that their life is less important or to tell my child for example that or my nephews that they're unwanted because they were born to a malaysian woman instead of a malaysian man is something i think that is incredibly difficult and fundamentally unfair and cruel right because there is no proper justification for it there just isn't so so for me at least with the issue of like citizenship uh that was even more hard hitting because for me when i came back because it was something that my family has lived with for over three generations right like my mother married my my father's german so she married and moved with him and then um we were born my sister and i were born in germany and then when we came back of course we were not citizens we were you know treated as foreigners and it took a long time for us to get uh first permanent residency and then and then citizenship finally right um but <laughs> and and i feel like my mom's developed ptsd from dealing with immigration every time we like you know had to do visa runs across the border into singapore and and as a means to temporarily renew our visa she would get so anxious because she always like face the possibility of being told that oh you're not allowed we're not allowing you to go in right and and we lived in johor so my house at least back then my mom's house you know was literally like 15 20 minutes from the from from the causeway from the immigration um and so to then you know like for her it was always such a huge source of anxiety and and she would really like i think it's just scarred her permanently um and then and then and then now of course i married uh for like a non malaysian my sister married a non malaysian it just so happened coincidentally like that our children were also born abroad and so now the whole thing repeats itself right um and and i was just so so it's so sad that you know we've had to deal with this and malaysian women have lived with this reality since the 1960s you know and i i have never known a life where this particular form of discrimination did not color my reality did not inform my choices and i know so many halfies you know half malaysians for whom you know a change like this uh you know would have made such a difference in their life in their life choices in their opportunities in the options that they had so so for me like this is a particularly important issue yeah absolutely now what are some of the challenges you've you've you talked about it a little bit um you know so, some uh, some of the things that your family um has gone through for for generations 
what are some of the challenges that you know whether um, your children, um, your your nieces, your nephews, and so on and so forth, um, had to face um, when it comes to this issue of citizenship, and what are the what is the impact of this? You know, not being able to get a citizenship. Um, you know, some people may not understand how serious that is. You know, it's just like oh, you're you're not a citizen, so what? Like, well, what's the big deal? <laughs> what, what what's the impact? You know, it has on family and especially on young children. One of our mothers said something incredibly like, you know, like uh, was big, like, whoa, yes. Citizenship rights, she said, is the gateway to other rights. It is, it is, it, you cannot access fundamental rights like education and healthcare without being a citizen. So for a lot of the children um, of the mothers in our network, for example, a lot of them are denied equal access to education and healthcare. And that is something that we as Malaysians take for granted. We take it as a given that, of course, our children will have access to this. But, you know, for those, not everybody can afford like education and healthcare, especially at the rate that is charged to non-Malaysians, right? So, and this is especially crucial for those who are the most vulnerable, right? So if you're not, uh, if you're not well off, if um, that child, for example, has a disability or a chronic illness, which requires consistent treatment, then that's something you're not able to give your child. And it, you know, one of the mothers in our network, for example, has a, has two children uh, who are on the autism spectrum, and she's basically had to choose um, between which child to send for therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so it, heartbreaking. It is. It is. Or if, or you know, the fact that the that the children need special needs education. Mm-hmm. Um, there are special classes for that. In the private sector, of course, you know, I was at some level our. Um, you know, our um, public education system doesn't necessarily have the tools or facilities um, to to provide that kind of education. But and so people go to the private sector, but the private sector is undoubtedly expensive. And so a lot of for a lot of mothers and again, these are like the ones who are the most vulnerable. They are unable to access that. And uh, private education is just, you know, just not an option. So what do you do then? So that's just one example. Um, also, I mean, there's several. So another one is that children, the children are at much higher risk of statelessness, especially those who can't access uh, the foreign father's citizenship, mm-hmm. right? So if they're born in a third country, for example, which doesn't grant that the child that citizenship, or the father is a refugee or stateless, uh, then and the child is born abroad, then how? Malaysia doesn't give citizenship the, <laughs> because it's from a mother. Foreign father has no access to his citizenship. So cannot pass it down. So the child is effectively stateless. And then that traps a lot of people in that realm of statelessness and, and the fact that there are no right mm-hmm. to children who are stateless. Yeah. Um, one of our mothers teaches stateless children in Sabah. And the irony of it is that one of her children then was also stateless, right? <laughs> later on, and this happened later, she actually teaches a Tafis school in, in Sabah. And the children there are stateless. Oh, and dear. Uh, I think all, all her other children are Malaysian, but that one child happened to be born abroad and therefore is uh, stateless, which is also... It's she's just like, ridiculous I, when you yeah. really think, when you think about yeah. it. It's just so ridiculous. And I mean, and that brings you to the second thing, right? Like this inequality even within the same family, right? So right. I remember when, when the High Court decision was passed and one of the mothers told her daughter, you know, and then the daughter was like this small child, right? Finally, I can be a Malaysian citizen like Mama and, and sister. And, and, you know, and 
that's so sad right like yeah, i finally so i can walk around with you yeah uh, so, so that inequality within the same family, I think, um, and this idea that uh, or feeds into the the, the social exclusion, um, and and really, what impact does that also have on the child's mental health, right? And and um, so it's a form of psychosocial distress, um, you know. And then there's always, of course, once they age out, once they hit twenty one, then they uh, under you know fifteen two, under which is the provision of citizenship by registration. Uh, once you hit 21, you're no longer eligible to apply for citizenship under the umbrella of your mother, right? Because you age out, right? So so then at 21, then a lot of families are like, oh my God, my kid is now 21. We're going to be separated. Uh, oh, it's just another layer on top of another layer on top of another right? layer of problems. Yeah. Yeah, it's so sad. And, like, and then you know, and these children, their family is here. This is the only family they've known, the only country they've known. They sing the Nagaraku, they... They and it's heartbreaking to tell these children, like, well, you know, this country doesn't want you and there's nothing I can do about it. Or I like the only way to be together is if we move somewhere else, if we move to another country, right? Like can you imagine a mother having to make those choices because you because for the mother then, the Malaysian mother, you're also leaving your family, right? You're leaving your family here in order to be together with your children. Uh, yeah, so there's also the impact on mothers. Clearly, I mentioned earlier that financial burden, being trapped sometimes in abusive marriages and not being able to leave because they can't bring their children with them, you know. So, so I mean, it just puts women in a much, much more vulnerable position. And of course, surrounding all of that is just this constant fear of being separated from your children, like one wrong move. Yeah, and, and you know, you're always waiting, right? So not only do you have you submitted an application, have mothers submitted an application for citizenship, they also have to submit applications constantly for uh, visa renewals and not knowing, right? Not knowing what the answer is, like not knowing when you'll get approved puts you at a constant, on in a constant state of anxiety where you're just afraid and, you, and it makes it really difficult to plan for your children's future, like, Will my child get accepted into this public school? I don't know. I have to wait and see whether whether or not all the local children have been placed. So my child has to wait. So I don't know. don't know how to make plans. Do I make plans for childcare? Do I make plans for after-school childcare? Do I make? Do I stop working? Do I not stop working? What do I do, right? There's all of these things that you think about and these uncertainties that I think really take a toll on Malaysian women. On the show with me today is Suri Kemper. She's the president of Family Frontiers. After the break, I'll be asking her about some of the biggest challenges she's faced as an activist. Keep it here on Good Things, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things. I'm Dashan Johan. And on the show with me today is Suri Kemper, president of Family Frontiers. So Suri, you are the president of Family Frontiers. For those who may not know, tell us a little bit about Family Frontiers and the work that you do there. So, uh, Family Frontiers is our English moniker. Uh, the the association is actually called uh, the Association of Family Support and Welfare. If so, it's Lango and Kia. That's our official official name. Um, but we established it really with the aim of advancing, promoting, and strengthening the family unit, so that really no family is left behind, regardless of who a person decides to marry or where this child is born. Um, and and we are currently working on two main issues. Uh, which is binational families um, and citizenship of overseas-born children of Malaysian women. And um, with that, we really hope to ensure that families have access to economic and social development. And we want to develop information and provide support 
to those families, to Malaysians, to their spouses, as they as they try and set, settle uh, in Malaysia uh, or are abroad and need assistance. Um, we do research on matters pertaining to the family, and we also, you know, hope that our work then leads to uh, the improved well-being uh, and integration and respect for all types of families in Malaysia. So last September was a pretty monumental month as far as this particular push for equality is concerned because in a historic KL High Court ruling, um, the court ruled that Malaysian mothers have the right to confer citizenship to their children born overseas. Now, following that though, the Ismail Sabri-led government filed an appeal against the decision um, and pretty much they, they are hoping that the Court of Appeal would overturn this decision. What is your message to the government? Gosh, I know. It's, sometimes I just have to laugh at how much work is being put into keeping women from obtaining equal rights. Right. Um, I, my big message to them would be that the discriminatory policies and practices that currently exist really fracture the Malaysian family, okay? Um, Malaysian women, at the end of the day, are just of, are of equal worth as Malaysian men. Like, what is the difference between a child born to a Malaysian mother versus a child born to a Malaysian father, you know? Um, this fracturing of Malaysian families, of extended families, is really tangled up in these in these discriminatory policies that this government chooses to like is adamant in upholding and it really breaks my heart because our children really want nothing more than to be able to enjoy their childhood like all other malaysian children they want to be equal to their malaysian siblings they want to not be scared of potentially being shipped off to to like to the country where you came from quote unquote right um or be told to leave um, yeah, and, and I think it's heartbreaking that this government cannot, has not been able to up until today find it within themselves to say, yes, this antiquated provision on citizenship does not make sense anymore. We value you, Malaysian women. We value you, Malaysian mothers. You, you know, contribute, recognize your contribution to Malaysia and you know and and we will amend these laws we will show you that we appreciate you we will show you we will walk the talk because at the end of the day everything else everything else like the slogan for kluarga malaysia for example just rings hollow when you look at the reality that malaysian women have to uh, go through that Malaysian families have to go through that their spouses have to go through that the mothers and the machanda atok neneks of the children right have to go through the grandparents it's it's uh it's heartbreaking that, that this is their line in the sand this is the one thing they say no no we cannot change this and are you hopeful um you know that the upcoming August fifth court of appeal are you hopeful that the verdict is going to be positive. Oh my God, yes. I am keeping my fingers crossed, of course. <laughs> I'm really the, uh, hoping that the Court of Appeal will rule in favour of Malaysian mothers and in favour of equality and, and really breathing meaning and life into the non-discrimination aspect of the federal constitution uh, and Article 8.2. I am so hopeful. I know that this is like, you know, the the decision on August 5th will not 
mark the end of a journey. It'll be another milestone, but I know this case will probably go all the way up to the federal court. Um, so I just, you know, one milestone at a time, one thing at a time. Yeah. I'm hoping, I'm very hopeful um, that, that you know, Malaysian women will finally see, like, will hear that the Court of Appeal, um, you know, uh, stands behind them. Absolutely. Now, Suri, you've been doing, you know, activism for more than a decade already. What was your childhood? and family like um when you were growing up did your parents or other family members um discuss politics or, or social justice regularly and how do they feel about you um deciding to to embark on this path of activism on you know sometimes having to a lot of the times needing to you know go up against the authorities or you know challenge the, the government for example <laughs> um, my mom so my mom is a, like raised me as a single parent um, and she I mean and yes she was so um, engaged politically like or at least in the conversations right she was right. always she was an avid reader or still is an avid reader and I would you know we would take road trips uh, during school holidays to Antonia like when we drive out to Penang or whatever from Johor you know um and of course, so my, it would be my mom, my grandma, and then me and my sister in the back seat. Maybe one of my cousins. Um, and of course, you know, the entire way up, it would be the both of them talking politics and talking about the latest political developments, like what is going on, this and that. Making, you know, so I, like I was always in a space where I heard them talk about it and comment on it. I might have not understood what on earth was going on, but you know, those, <laughs> those are the seeds right. of 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 like political awareness, right? Like that you have to be engaged. And of course, my mom, um, because as a single mom, like she faced some challenges that a lot of single parents face. Um, and so, you know, would always say, well, we have all these things to do. We have to stay alert, you know, as a woman or as a single parent, you know, um, we can't rely on, or like we can't rely on, um, handouts or you know we have to work hard and do all these things that we need to do in order to survive um so yeah you know like she was just this um she was just this uh this this big fiery driving force like my friends my high school friends loved her <laughs> because she also kept that space open right to talk to have conversations to ask her questions the one thing i realized i really picked up from her was in joho one of the things we have is like access to the BBC, right? Streaming um, way before streaming services were available, but we get we get the BBC. So um, because of Singapore, I think. Um, and and when I got into the car, she would always uh, play it even as much to my chagrin uh, because I wanted to listen to the latest radio, like songs on the radio. And she'd be like, no, no, I'm listening <laughs> to this now. You have to listen to it too. And they'd be talking about like, Palestine or what's going on. I had no clue, of course, right? But that opened up the space for me to ask her, okay, can you explain this to me? I don't know what's going on. Tell me what's the deal with um, the, you know, Palestinian conflict, Palestinian-Israeli conflict, or what's, what are they talking about? So so that was that space where, where she would always um, explain to me what was going on. So I think that that ignited, you know, um, and of course she, she, she was always this strong and vocal person who I looked up to uh, and still do. 
Um, although our views now uh, maybe like you know there are some some differences in our views, but <laughs> as, as is want to happen between right. two just outspoken people in the same family. But um, but yeah, I mean that was just that space. So how did she feel? So I guess um, when it came to her feelings about me being active you know, I thought it was quite surprising that given this, um, that she'd be, she all, always, she did raise doubts about my outspokenness, right? Um, right? I guess it was one thing to have those conversations at the dinner table or in the car or whatnot, um, but a whole other thing to to then say it out and be quoted in the media. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> right? um, yeah. I, remember, I remember when I was working for Sisters in Islam and... Um, I think one of the headlines that came out was like, Sisters in Islam says, uh, Jakim is not God. Mom was just like, oh my God, you're going to get into so much trouble. And and those are legit, legitimate worries of yeah. any parent. Um, so she's all, but she's never tried to stop me. And that's the huge thing. Like she's always, you know, she might have her doubts and concerns, but she's never tried to dissuade me or she will she'll just be like mm, just be careful mm, and then she'll just walk off right <laughs> um, yeah so so like I owe a lot of like that to her um but also the fact that she's never tried to stop me I think the one time um I, she did was uh during I think one of the first few birthdays you know where where uh-huh. my kid my, my daughter was still small and in order to go I would need a babysitter I would need someone to taking care of her Um, and so she was like no I will not take I refuse to babysit today (laughs) (laughs) so I got stuck so I had to like that was (laughs) so she was like no no you cannot go you'll get arrested like your guest law whatever nonsense which I understood but I was so mad (laughs) but also like I cannot believe you're holding me hostage holding your child Right? But I understand where it comes from. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, and it's just one of those things parents sometimes do. Yeah, and, definitely. And I get it. I get it. I don't want to hold it against her. Um, and and you know, I still managed to go to all the other birthdays. So <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. What are some of the biggest challenges you faced as an activist in in all your years doing this? Oh, biggest challenges, I guess. Constantly being told, I think, you know, that I'm a troublemaker or being difficult, um, I think sometimes um, has a grating effect. There's like sometimes you really question yourself, right? Am I really a troublemaker? Am I just really being, is this, you know, can I just do matter and not pretend this isn't happening? But but I've learned what that, what that made me do is, really i've learned to redefine what being a troublemaker means you know right and whether like and that that i really don't think it is a bad thing you know if being a troublemaker means asking questions asking why we're supposed to follow or abide by an unjust law or an unjust policy or something's being forced down your throat and you cannot ask questions then 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 so be it. Then I am proudly, I will proudly wear that label of being a troublemaker. I'm like, yes, I can, I, I will do this, right? And um, you're such an inspiration to a lot of people, you know, being the troublemaker that you are. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, I guess the other thing is also that, you know, people say the arc of history bends towards justice. 
Um, and we see in the long run that rights, you know, rights are being granted where there weren't any before. I mean, just look at look at uh, the journey Malaysian women have made, you know, throughout the times, throughout history, and like what advances they've made. Um, but sometimes that journey takes a really long time, right? And and within that journey, we sometimes take one step forward, two steps back, and that I think can be a little bit heartbreaking. But then again, again, you know, when I go down this little like spiral, <laughs> I think, you know, no one's ever had their rights handed to them on a silver platter. And anything that's worth fighting for, you will encounter trials and tribulations for sure. So so we have to keep the faith. And that's really been an exercise in resilience for me and and um, the people I'm surrounded by. Because because I refuse to accept that the only other option that I have is to abandon my home and leave. I refuse, you know, like I don't want to be forced to leave because I have a say. This is my home. I have a say in deciding uh, whether it becomes more inclusive, kinder. You know, I have a say in that and I have a role to play in that. And I, that's what I want to do. I don't right. I refuse to be forced out. And is that what keeps you going in in the face of defeat? Because activists, you know, usually face many, many defeats um, with perhaps a little bit to celebrate here and there, you know, but there's mostly a lot of obstacles, a lot of challenges. And then after going through all of that, there'll be one small victory. And even as we see, um, you know, just as we're talking about the government appealing to overturn the you know, the, basically the high court's decision. Even then, you know, sometimes you, you feel like you've achieved some sort of victory and then there's more curveballs, more challenges. What do you, what keeps you, what makes you keep the faith and not say, you know what, I, I, pro- I can't do this. Um, I, I probably just should pack my bags and leave <laughs> and, and go to a, another country. Uh, what keeps you going in the face of these defeats? It's tempting, right? It's tempting to think like moving might solve all of those problems, but, but you know, having lived abroad uh, myself, like every country comes with its own set of problems and its own set of discriminations. Um, and again, this is my space. You know, I have a, as much a right to it as anyone, any other citizen. Um, but really, I guess what keeps me going is that it's not just about those small victories. I mean, those victories are great. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's not just about that, right? So it's it's the people, uh, I guess, who've um, in the movement who I've met along the way, like human rights advocates in the scene, uh, but also the people that we do this work with, right? And and for and um, like, you know, that reminds me why I do this. I feel like the, for example, the mothers um, that that are in our network, in the Family Frontiers Network, for example, they're so inspiring, you know, the moms, their children, my sister, my own daughter, my child, my my nephews, you know, all of those, those are the people we do the, this for. You know, when we, if we push for amendments to the domestic violence legislation or sexual, or push for a sexual harassment bill, I mean, it's all the women who've for you know who've ever experienced sexual harassment or who will and we're making this place safer like you know for all of those reasons that's i feel like that's it's the people behind it that really um that really make this a, a not an option you know it is something that i we had like just that just keeps me going um granted <laughs> i like sometimes i'm just i get burnt out and i'm tired and like i you know and it's fine i think 
for all activists and for all for everyone, I think who experiences burnout to take that break, right? right to take care absolutely. of themselves, to take a break, to figure out where that balance lies between like taking care of yourself and taking care of others and taking care of the people around you. Because regardless of what your profession is, this is something that everyone does. And mm-hmm. so it's okay to take that break, to find that balance and to negotiate that space for yourself. Um, but at the end of the day, this is, you know, this is the fight that we come back to, right? This right. is the reason why we do this because I feel it's really difficult to watch that inequality happen or, or people being treated unfairly or unjustly, you know, it's because it's cruel and I just can't abide by that. It, it's too painful for me to watch. Mm. On the flip side, Suri, what has been your favorite memory from your years in activism? Oh, I guess I guess this one's linked very much to the previous uh, question. Ah, um, right. I mean, I don't know if it's so much a particular instance. Of course, you know, the High Court decision was really exciting. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, so those are instances that, or like when it, amendments that we that we pushed for to like particular legislation came through, particular provisions were improved. All of those things are super exciting. All like per se, and just watching so many people in the streets call for the same thing. That's all super exciting. But it's not so much, I guess for me at least, it's not so much the particular instances versus the people I've met along the way. Right. Um, and the knowledge that they've so generously shared with me and that uh, that continued optimism for a better world, the strategizing that goes into the work that we do, all of that is just, I think, is 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 what keeps me here is what is what I what gets me excited right when I think about mm-hmm. the work that we do and I can't imagine not doing it and speaking of a better world um one last question before we wrap this conversation up what is your hope for the future of Malaysia I mean I would it sound too cliche and cheesy if I said like I just I would love for us to be kinder to each All other right. more, more mm-hmm. inclusive that Malaysia is a place where where we respect the inherent humanity within each and every one of us, that that it can be a space where people can live their lives with dignity, that people have equal opportunities regardless of your race or gender or sexuality or religion or whatever. I just, I like want that space for everyone who's here. And I know, oh my God, I just, I'm cringing like, <laughs> just like, no, oh, not cliche. at all. It's not cliche <laughs> at all. I think it's very, it's, it's, it's true. And it's, it's very powerful what, what you're saying. I mean, that's ultimately it, right? Like that's yeah. the space I want, like the, for people to ha- have that freedom to be their, again, uh, overused word, but authentic, authentic selves where Absolutely. they can, you know, be accepted for who they are. That's, that's just, that's something I would love to see. Yeah. It sounds, you know, like very simple, but it's it's the simplest things, right? It's the little things that, that you know, all of us want and, and it makes a big impact. On, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Suri. Thanks for having me. This has been such a cool conversation. That was Suri Kemper. She's the president of Family Frontiers. If you missed any part of the conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Good Things. BFM 89.9.